Our, the title of this sermon this morning is called, it's called Putting Aside All Envy. Those are words that come from our text, which is 1 Peter chapter 2, the first three verses. You can turn there. Putting Aside All Envy. I want to make a few opening comments, though, before we come to the text. It's important to realize that the new birth, what we commonly refer to as getting saved, the new birth, is not an end in itself. God's not just concerned in getting people in the door. He's after something with these people. He has a goal in mind. What is the goal? He regenerates and justifies wicked sinners like me and you in order that we might be conformed more and more into the image of his son, that we might be holy as he is holy. In a little bit after our passage in the letter to, um, in, from Peter, the first letter, verse 9 of chapter 2, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. God wants a holy people for himself. That's the goal in redemption, is to get for himself a holy people. You shall be holy as he is holy. Personal holiness in our day-to-day lives is the goal of the gospel's progress among us. But what is holiness? How do we measure it? How do we know what it is? Well, the standard of holiness, the plumb line, is God's law. That's how we know what holiness is, God's law. And as Jesus summarized that law for us in Matthew 22, he said it consists of two great commands. You know them. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So holiness is not just avoiding certain things. There's much more to it. Obedience, which is what the Lord's after from us in the work of redemption and the work of saving our souls, that we become obedient and holy, consists in two great commands, and at the heart, at the center of each of those commands, is one unifying and very simple ideal, love. They will know we are Christians by our love. Jonathan Edwards has a sermon you should all go home this evening after small group lunch and read, Heaven, a World of Love. And in it, he talks about how he paints the picture for us of that heaven is a place of love. That's the holiness that is in heaven, love. Love for God that's with all heart, mind, and soul. Love for neighbor as we love ourselves. It's a world of love. And then he exhorts us to start living like that now, here. But the natural man, the man born into this world naturally, can't love, cannot obey, cannot be holy like this, as God is holy. The obedience, the pure love that God requires of us depends on something in our nature drastically changing. This is what we call the new birth. A man must be regenerated, born again of God's spirit before he can lift any of his fingers in the work of obedience. Why is this? Well, in the words of scripture, it's because we are children of wrath. We are children of wrath. We cannot love We're children of wrath. We're sons of disobedience. We are desperately wicked. We are dead in trespasses and sins. This is how the Bible describes us as fallen men. 
It says we are dead spiritually. It says we hate the truth. It says we hate Jesus Christ. It says we dwell in darkness. Our hearts are made of stone. We're helpless. We cannot repent. We're slaves of Satan. We cannot see or comprehend any of God's truth. It's all foolishness to us. Consider these words from Psalm 14. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That no one means us, you and me. There is no one. None of us does good, not even one. It's not that we have any capacity for behaving good, for appearing good. God graciously restrains sin in this world through something we call common grace. None of us are as bad as we possibly could be. But none of us have in us the slightest ability to give God the holiness that he's after, naturally. This is why we must be saved. And at the beginning, at the root, the genesis of this saving, the heart of it is new birth. We must be remade, regenerated. Now someone might say, and I, I, as I did for most of my 20s, I think, how can God command us to do something that he knows that we can't do and then condemn us to hell for it? How can God, how does he get off commanding us to do things that he knows that we can't do and then condemns us to hell for it? That's what we call a bad question. It's a wicked question. It comes from rebellion. I was in rebellion for asking it in my 20s. But there is a simple answer to it from Scripture. It's that God loves us. And he desires us to be saved. And so he sends his law. He crushes us under the oppressive weight of it. He says in Romans 5, I believe, that the law came in so that, not so that we would know how to please God and be saved... That's not what Paul says. He says, so that sin would increase. So the weight of it would be unbearable. So that we would have no option but Christ. No hope of salvation in ourselves or in our ability to keep a law. The law is too big, too perfect, too high. We all fall short of it. And we must have Christ. And his righteousness applied to us by faith, or there's no hope. Now, if we hear the law thundering, if we feel it weighing down on us, and we flee to the cross of Christ, it's not a result of our figuring that out. It's a result of God's grace working a miracle in us. A miracle. And that miracle is the new birth. The Spirit gives us, he gives us ears to hear. He gives us eyes to see. We behold Christ. We love him. He's the answer. We see it. That's a miracle. Because as we look, heard before, we hate Christ. We don't see. We have a heart of stone. We're proud. We're desperately wicked. As the, psalm, the song says that we sing sometimes here, My Lord, I did not choose you, for that could never be. My heart would still refuse you had you not chosen me. No one can come to me, said Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws him. Coming to Jesus is not a cooperative act that we engage in with God. The God who sent Jesus draws us to him or we are repulsed by him. It's foolish to us. Now God chose and elected 
some of us to receive the new birth. And he did this choosing before the foundations of the world, it says in Ephesians 2. But then at a particular moment in time, he calls us to himself. He draws us through the preaching of the gospel. And in that moment, the Spirit regenerates the hearts of the elect at a particular time in their life. They hear the gospel, and the Spirit works, and he quickens them. They become alive, and they hear, and they flee to the, the blood of Jesus and are reconciled to God. They are born again. Now the scriptures tell us that if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away and new things have come. We're born again. We were spiritually dead. Now we have a beating heart. We were enemies of God. Now we're his sons. We were slaves of sin and of our master Satan. We've become slaves of righteousness to serve the living God. And the goal of all of it, this is my point, the goal of all of it is love from a pure heart and undefiled conscience. Love. Heaven is a world of love. The church should be a world of love. Of love. This is the point of the gospel and its progress among us that we become, that we fall in love with one another, that we love one another as we love ourselves, that we love the Lord God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. Now, I want to issue a qualifier about the new birth some of us need to hear. It does not bring about an end to all sin. That comes later. That comes in the new heavens and the new earth. That's the end of all sin. Christ does not reach down in when he justifies us and zap us free from sin. We, don't, we still have sin indwelling in us. Yes, it says that if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creature and the old things have passed away and new things have come. That's true. It does not mean, though, that genuine Christians never sin. It means that where there was once a pile of dry bones who could do nothing but the works of death, now there's animation. Now there's possibility. Where there was a heart of stone, there's now a heart of flesh. It beats. Where there was an enemy, now there's a son. Sons continue to disobey, don't they? But it's a totally different relationship that's created in, by God's Spirit when he regenerates us, when we're justified, we're made sons of God. Where there was only wickedness continually, now there is a godly principle, a Holy Spirit that dwells within us who fights against the flesh, the old man. I have to say this to encourage some of you who have the wrong idea about salvation who will, as we get into a, a sin that's lingering from our old man who's still there, who the Spirit's fighting against, Every time you sin, you despair. I don't want you to despair. I want you to repent and to live by faith. So the new birth doesn't bring about complete, perfect glorification instantly. There's this work in the middle, which is where we live today, sanctification. We're, being, we're making progress in holiness. Now, all this by way of introduction, okay, but this is the context in which we find our verses that we're going to study. Chapter 2 of 1 Peter begins with the word, therefore. Of course, you know that that points us back to truths 
that Peter has already established, and we need to understand that context because what he's about to say is based on it, okay? So that's what we've been doing, but listen to the preceding verses, chapter 1, verses 15 to the end, and you'll recognize a lot of what I've already been saying. Verse 15 of chapter 1, 1 Peter, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address his father, if you call God as your father, if you address him as father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your fathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he, that is Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God." Now listen to this. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified yourselves for a sincere love of the brethren. Since you've purified yourselves to love your brothers, for a sincere, heartfelt love for your brothers. This is the point. Fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again. Not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. Here he's equating the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who does this work of regeneration, of giving us new birth, with the word. The Spirit's word. There's this question that we teach our children, who wrote the Bible? The answer is, holy men who were taught by the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit's word. He wrote it. And he uses this as a means of regenerating hearts as the gospel is preached. Verse 24, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. So several key contextual points we need to notice. Number one, we are to be holy as God is holy. Right? Number two, This holiness is only possible through the cleansing blood of Jesus, redeeming us from our sins. Number three, coming under Christ's blood is the result of the Spirit's working regeneration in us, giving new birth. Four, the Spirit works this new birth in us by means of the living and enduring Word of God. And lastly, the great end of all of this is love, that we would love one another from the heart. So there's a strong connection here that I want us to see between the holiness that God requires in his law and love. This 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 is the law and the prophets that we love. And it's in this context that we come to these verses from chapter two. This is God's word and it's eternally true. Therefore, because of all of this, therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord." putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would taste your kindness today, that your Holy Spirit would be poured out on us in abundance, that we would be given ears to hear and eyes to see the wonderful things in your law, and that through your word, through the pure milk of it, we would grow in respect to salvation. We pray this in your name, amen.
So we see here a list of lingering sins from the old man, sins that were commanded by Peter to set aside, to put away from us in order that we might progress in respect to salvation. And the ultimate purpose of that salvation is love, so that we might progress in love. What are the sins that are mentioned? Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. All of those sins are contrary to the new man, contrary to your new nature, contrary to the great end of salvation, love. They're in the way. They must be removed, set aside. This morning, though, we're just going to focus on one. One that I think plagues us. It certainly plagues me. The sin of envy. We're going to focus on the sin of envy. Envy is something we're commanded here to put aside from us. Let's see how, if, if we can discern how to do it. There are two types of envy in the Bible that plague the righteous. The first type we see in Psalm 73. It's the type that's born when we look longingly at the prosperity of the wicked. That's the first type of envy. Listen to this. This is what David says in Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their, eyes, their eye bulges with fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They've set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. And always at ease, they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. This is a, a lateral envy. It's David, who's on the narrow road that leads to salvation, which is a hard road looking over at the broad, easy path. And he's envious of the people on there and the ease that they have and the fatness that they enjoy and the sins that they get away with. David says, though, that the cure for this kind of envy is what? To come into the house of God, to come into worship and remember their end. Verse 15 of 73 David says, if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God, and then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. I see that now. I'm reminded how they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Come into worship, and we can cure ourselves of that kind of envy when we remember the judgment. And yet as soon as we come into the church, we're faced with a new enemy. We're faced with a whole new set of temptations to envy. One another. And here, we have the righteous envying the righteous. And this is a vertical kind of envying. I'll explain that. This is a vertical kind of envying. It's coveting from one gift or grace to another one that's above us. And God ha has made 
has dispensed his gifts and graces unequally in the church. Get used to it. Some ten talents, some five talents, and some one talent. And when we envy those who are above us in talents, we are sinning against love. Love is impossible. Do we suffer this kind of envy at clear note? <sighs> How do I know that we do? Well, I'm a, I've been a student now for a while of my own heart. I went through the pastor's college. I had to sit next to gifted men. All of us, there's no end to the opportunities to envy one another. No end to it. And I've been talking to a number of you recently and been privileged to hear your confessions of sin, of envy. And it's been beautiful. I've also heard your grumbling against one another. I've also grumbled against you. And so envy is a great temptation here. And, I think, a great sin of ours. And it's a, what the passage is saying, it's a, it's a great danger, an obstacle to our progress as, a, as individual believers and as a church. What is envy? Let's define it for a moment. The dictionary definition of envy is a feeling of discontented or resentful longing that's aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, it says, or luck. We would probably use a different word. Some perceived degree of blessing that they have. A feeling of discontented or resentful longing that's aroused by someone else's possessions or qualities or luck. Jonathan Edwards defies envy as a spirit of dissatisfaction and or opposition to the prosperity and happiness of others. Anybody resemble that remark? Shamedly, I do. This is a wicked sin. It's a sin against love, a sin against holiness, a sin against the law of God. Behind envy is, of course, covetousness. They're not quite the same thing, but you can't envy, which is that twinge of resentment without wanting something. So it's a sin that's covered under the 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. The Westminster Larger Catechism, and I'll just plug this for a minute, spend some time in the Westminster Larger Catechism. You can find it online or in, no, it's not in the back of the hymnals. We don't even have hymnals. But you couldn't find it if we did. It's online probably is the best place to look for it. The Westminster Larger Catechism and, and it expounds upon briefly all of the Ten Commandments and it's just very helpful, very helpful. Listen to this. This is what it says about the Tenth Commandment. Question 147. What are the duties required in the Tenth Commandment? The duties required in the Tenth Commandment are such a full contentment with our own condition and such a charitable frame of the whole soul, soul toward our neighbor as that all our inward motions and affections touching him tend unto and further all that good which is his. Such a full contentment in our own condition and such a charitable frame as all of our actions, attitudes, touching our neighbor further and promote his good, the good that is his. Question, the next question, what are the sins forbidden in this 10th commandment? The answer, the sins forbidden in the 10th commandment are discontentment with our own estate, envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor, together with all inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. Clearly, envy is a sin against love. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 makes that clear. He lists envy among 
those things that are opposite to love. Love does not, it's not jealous, it's not, does not envy. Therefore, the entire purpose of our redemption in Jesus Christ is jeopardized by the sin of envy. Envious people are unable to rejoice with those who rejoice. It's impossible to, to rejoice with those who rejoice, which is one of the evidences of love when we envy the things that others have. It's also impossible to weep with those who weep. Because after all, God sanctifies suffering in people's life. We'll never weep with those who weep when we are filled with envy. Because even that we can envy. Even their suffering. Even the trials God is putting them under. Knowing that we know this is going to work out for their good. And we resent it. What causes envy? The cause of envy was pointed to already in the definitions and the catechism questions. But envy springs from a spirit of discontentment. When we're dissatisfied with some aspect of our condition, we look around lustfully and covetously at the state, the condition of others. When we're dissatisfied with our own condition, then we look around lustfully at the condition of others. And what do we see? What's the stuff that we envy? Well, it's the various gifts, graces, positions, privileges, possessions of our brothers. Bear in mind, though, that the Holy Spirit has sovereignly dispensed these things in perfect agreement with the mind of our mutual Father. He's dispensed his gifts sovereignly in perfect agreement with the Father God to our advantage to our mutual delight and enjoyment and building up one another for our benefit. We see a gift of teaching and we envy it. We see a gift of administration, organization, which I don't have, and I envy it. We see a gift of boldness in witnessing and I envy it. We see a grace. God has worked in somebody's life. We see their faith and we envy it. We see boldness and witnessing. We see knowledge. We see their zeal. We see their compassion and we envy it. Now there's nothing wrong with admiring, desiring, imitating, longing for, pursuing these gifts. And graces. But when we feel the twinge of anger or resentment or bitterness or hatred, then it's become envy. It's not a holy desire. We envy people who hold offices. I want to be an elder. I am an elder. Why doesn't anybody see it? I work hard, just as hard as those men. We envy one another's physical blessings, houses, properties, wives, husbands, fewer children, more children. We can even, in our perversity, admire or envy personal tragedy. I can. The larger catechism, again, acknowledges there's, there's a hierarchy to gifts. Listen to this. And it's expounding on the fifth commandment. And it's talking about honoring your father and mother. This is what it says. Who are meant by father and mother in the fifth commandment? By father and mother in the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents, 
but all superiors in age and gifts. And especially such by, as by God's ordinance are over us in place of authority, whether in family, church, or commonwealth. Question 125. Why are superiors styled father and mother? Well, this is so that we know, as superiors, that we're to be benevolent, kind, charitable, like a father to a child. That's the next answer. Then question 127. What is the honor that inferiors owe to their superiors? The honor which inferiors owe to their superiors is all do reverence in heart, word, and behavior, prayer and thanksgiving for them, imitation of their virtues and graces, willing obedience to their lawful commands and counsels, due submission to their corrections, fidelity to defense and maintenance of their persons and authority, according to their several ranks and the nature of their places, bearing with their infirmities and covering them in love, that so they may be an honor to them and to their government. So that their infirmities may be an honor to them. (laughs) That's our job, to cover in love. What are the sins of inferiors against their superiors? The sins of inferiors against their superiors are all neglect of the duties required toward them, envying at contempt of and rebellion against their persons and places in their lawful counsels, commands and corrections, cursing, mocking, and all such refractory and scandalous carriage as proves a shame and dishonor to them and their government. Most of this happens in our hearts, but it comes out, doesn't it? It comes out at home, comes out down the hallways, one-on-one, There's a hierarchy to gifts. There's ten talents, five talents, one talent. These are sovereignly dispensed by the Holy Spirit. And we envy vertically up and down the ladder. I remember well walking uh, across campus one night after a lecture that I attended on economics. It was a really great lecture. I learned a lot. I realized I knew nothing about economics, which depressed me, because, of course, I expect to to know everything, to have it all. I lust for that. And so I caught myself suddenly praying yet again for wisdom. I realized this is a habit of mine. Suddenly I'm self-aware, and I realize I, I do this all the time. And, and God's Spirit convicted me of the sin of it. Why do I say it's a sin? Why was it a sin for me? Well, I was reminded of these, these verses from James. James says, You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. I wanted to spend wisdom on my pleasures. I was asking with wrong motives. I wanted to be thought wise, and that would give me pleasure. That's not envy, though. That's covetousness. That's idolatry. Envy came next day or next time I was around somebody who was wise and I was reminded again of my inferiority to them in wisdom and I hated them I resented them what are we going to do about envy Notice we're given both a negative and a positive command here. We're told to put aside envy, that's the negative command, and we are to positively long, like a newborn baby, for the pure milk of the word. 
And we're encouraged to do both of these things in order that we might grow in respect to salvation. Everybody sees that, right? Put aside envy, negative. Long, like a newborn baby, for the milk of the word. And all for the purpose that we might grow in respect to salvation. Now, each of us, as it were, has an aptitude, okay? We have a potential. We have ten, five, or one talent. Our responsibility as born-again believers, is to grow up into that talent to mix metaphors. To invest it wisely and to bring a return. We'll never get any taller. We'll never grow up into full stature. We'll never achieve our potential. When we take our eyes when we stop feeding on the sincere milk of the word. And the, the opposite of that is lusting after coveting, envying, okay? Clearly. This is, these are put in opposite, antithesis to one another. Lusting after the stature of others, growing jealous and envious of our brothers, stunts our growth, stunts our progress, holds us back, it's in the way. We've taken our mouth off the new man's jaw, okay? And we're sucking hard, again, on the old man's jaw, which feeds on corruption, which feeds on, I don't know what, what would we say? The fruitless deeds of darkness. Taken our mouth in envy, we take our mouth off of the new man's straw, the, sinc- the sincere, pure milk of the word, and we're sucking hard again on the old man's straw. New- we have a new man and an old man, remember? They're both still here together, spirits fighting against the flesh. We have to feed the new man so that he'll grow up tall in love. The longing after pure milk of the word that is is commanded here is not something God intends his children ever to graduate from, okay? Elsewhere in scripture, that's how it's used, not here. This is not just an emergency session, a a top-up in the elementary principles, okay? Listen to what Calvin says about this. Stay with me. Paragraph from Calvin. Paul reproves the Corinthians in that other letter because they are like children and therefore they cannot take strong food but are to be fed with milk. 1 Corinthians 3. Almost the same words are found in Hebrews 5. But in these passages, those who are compared to children remain always novices and ignorant scholars in the doctrine of religion. They stick to the first elements and they never penetrate into the higher knowledge of God. Milk is called the simpler mode of teaching and one suitable to children. They still need milk. It's unfortunate. They should be pushed through. But they haven't, and it's, it's sad. Paul then rightly charges this as a fault of theirs, equally with the author of the epistle of the Hebrews. But milk here, in First Peter, is not elementary doctrine, which one perpetually learns and never comes to the knowledge of the truth, but a mode of living which has the savor of the new birth when we surrender ourselves to be brought up by God. In the same manner, infancy is not set in opposition to manhood or to the full-grown man in Christ, but to the old age of the flesh and of the old life. Infancy is his, way, his metaphor for the new birth versus the old man and the sins of the old man, the desires of it. Moreover, as the infancy of the new life is perpetual, so Peter recommends milk as perpetual nourishment, for he wishes those nourished by it to grow. Have you been drinking, or which straw are you drinking from? 
You can either have your envy or you can grow. And it matters, okay? It matters. There's a warning in Hebrews. Let's see if I thought to write that down. There's a warning in Hebrews. Let us fear, it says, if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any of you may seem to have come short of it. We must grow in respect to salvation or face the very real possibility of coming short of that salvation. We must grow in respect to salvation. We must grow in the end of it, love, or face the real possibility that we'll come short of it. And this has real life manifestation. It's not just heaven, hell. It is heaven and hell. But we see it manifested here. And how is it manifested here? In this life. If you don't, if you don't put these sins out of the way, if you nurse the old man and his corruptions, not only will you take your mouth off the new man's straw, the sincere milk of the word, stop drinking it, stop growing, you'll, you'll, you're, you're, if you nurse the other man and he grows, you'll, you'll leave here. You'll leave the church. You'll hate the church because you can't stand Christians. You envy them. You're filled with envy, and if you nurse that envy, it will result in you leaving the church, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. If the Lord is convicting you, as he's convicting me, of the sin of envy, what are you to do about it? What are you to do about it? Well, you have to remember, Jesus died for your sin of envy. Okay? This is a sin that Jesus died for. Confess it as sin. Confess all the other sins that gave birth to it. Bring it under his blood. Have your conscience washed from evil so that you can grow in respect to salvation unhindered, so you can grow in love, so you can, you can love one another again from the heart, okay? Confess it as sin. Be forgiven. Jesus offers you that forgiveness today. He died for that sin. Secondly, learn the secret of contentment. There's a secret to it. Contentment is the enemy of envy. If you're content, you will not envy. So learn the secret of contentment. This is what Paul said he had. He said to the Philippians in Philippians 4, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. What's the secret? The secret is that Paul's not looking for satisfaction in those circumstances. He's not putting his hope in those circumstances. He's learned to, to be content in whatever he's got because that's not where his affections lie. Where are his affections? In God. Let our contentment be like David's contentment. Listen to this, Psalm 17. Verse 15, as for me, says David, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. I shall be satisfied in thy likeness when I awake. Listen, is it enough for us to be saved? Are you after something more than that here? Is it enough that you should be saved? If you're after something more than that, if that's not enough for you, what, what's going on? The 
The fear of the Lord is also the enemy of envy. You can have your envy, or you can grow in respect to salvation. You can't have both envy and progress in it. To envy is to suck on the old man's straw, okay? Got it? We have to turn to it, to the pure milk of God's word. An extension of that word is here before us. This is something God gave us in his word, the sacrament, where we feed on the spiritual body and blood of our Lord by faith. This food is for your new man. Okay? But if you... Oh, isn't that a lovely sound? They're having huge, wild grass fires out in Missouri where my parents live. 600 acres just burn whenever a spark hits the ground just as fast as you can run. That's such a lovely... It rained for four hours, I was told, last night in Missouri, and everyone was just all all over Facebook. (laughs) This is food for your new man. This is sucking on the new man's jaw. But you can't come here if you're committed to the old man. This table, this food will not benefit you. It will be poison to you if your commitment is to your old man. You have to let him, you have to get him aside. Okay? Beat him down. How do you do that? It's not a perfect thing, okay? We're not looking for instant perfection in this. It's, we're looking for repentance. This is how you come to the table. You come repentant. Lord, it's like pilgrim. Life! And he just runs. That's what we're looking for here. And if that's you, if that's me, then come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Spiritual food. Let's pray. Your Father, we praise you. Your word is powerful. And I pray, Father, that it would accomplish its good work, that it wouldn't return into you void, but it would, it would accomplish everything that you, you intend that it should in us. May it be to our benefit. May we be changed and conformed into your likeness. May we be holy as you are holy. May we love and thus fulfill your law. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.